0: Well, good morning, y'all. Good morning. That's pretty Texan, isn't it, y'all? I'm, I'm working on it. Well, please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, verses 7 through 12. And we're continuing, continuing with the Sermon on the Mount, and I'll go ahead and read that now. Matthew 5, verses 7 through 12. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to worship you now through the study of your word. And as we do so, we come before your word with awe and with reverence and expectation, the expectation of hearing from you through your living word. And so as it is taught and received, we pray that we will hear from you through the power and the ministry and the person of your Holy Spirit. We ask this in the name of Jesus and all God's people said. Amen. Well, it's great. It's a privilege to be here with y'all. I've been worshipping out here in the in the pews with y'all for the last couple of years and enjoy Wednesday nights by the way. The Wednesday Word is our midweek worship service. We do what we do here on on Sunday mornings, we Pastor Todd leads us in, wor- in musical worship, and then we have verse by verse studies going on. And we're currently going through the book of Revelation. This week, we'll be hitting the Rockham Sockham letter to the church at Philadelphia. Super encouraging letter. So everyone's invited. We've got great food and fun and fellowship, and you're all are, are welcome to come out and join us. So let's get to it, shall we? Now, first question, first. Um, now let's just get it. Let's do get right into it. Matthew five seven through twelve. Last Sunday, Ross, Pastor Ross, began a study through the Sermon on the Mount, and we're kind of calling this the. The summer on the mount series and he led us through the first four beatitudes beatitudes just latin for the blessings and this morning we're going to finish our look at those beatitudes and then next week we'll continue on as a church body together now before we get into the text this morning i wanted to kind of do a little backup a little prelude talking about what's gone on in matthew and some of the phrases i'll be using this morning and the first is to talk about the idea called the the kingdom of god matthew uses the term kingdom of heaven where the other gospel writers tend to use kingdom of God. And and that's just out of respect for the Jewish sensitivities regarding the fourth commandment, not using the name of the Lord in vain. But the terms are interchangeable kingdom of God and kingdom of of heaven, And so let's talk a little bit about early Matthew and how the kingdom of God kind of comes into focus, bringing us to the Sermon on the Mount here. Matthew 1 begins, of course, it contains the genealogy of Jesus through Joseph and culminates in the miraculous birth of Jesus. Matthew 2 then contains the visit, the famous visit of the Magi from the east, and then the flight of Joseph's family down to Egypt to escape Herod. And then, of course, upon the death of Herod the Great, coming back to the Holy Land, but then moving up north in the land of Galilee and settling in Nazareth. And then we move on to chapter 3. And in chapter 3 contains the account of the Messiah's forerunner. This is John the Baptist. He's the one who came to pave the way to make ready the hearts of the nations for the really important one to come, and that's Jesus. And so John the Baptist comes on the scene as a prophet of the Lord, and for the first time in over four centuries, over 400 years, suddenly a prophet is speaking in the land of Israel again, and Israel is excited by this. There a tremendous amount of excitement during that time because of the, the Jewish calendar, the counting down from Daniel chapter 9, etc. cetera. They know that the Messiah is right around the corner. There are huge messianic expectations in the land of Israel. And then here comes John the Baptist. And not only that, the famous Jewish scholar, Alfred Edersheim, believing Jewish scholar, he's a wonderful guy, lived in the 19th century. He tells us that this was actually a sabbatical year when John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness and that makes sense because if you've ever been to the land of Israel, you'll know that where John is baptizing and preaching near the Jordan it's not easy to get to, it's not centrally located, but because it's a sabbatical year, everyone has the year off, how's that for a good idea? And it wasn't even COVID related. So everyone had the year off. And so they're, they're heading out to John the Baptist. Everyone is excited about what's going on. And John has a very simple pointed message for the people of Israel. He says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is is at hand. That's his message, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's near, it's upon us. Then Matthew 3 ends with the baptism of Jesus, followed by, of course, Matthew chapter 4, which outlines outlines the temptation of Jesus. And after his temptation, Matthew then records that John is arrested, and as we know, he's put in prison, and he will die there. He's never freed. And immediately after that, the imprisonment of John Matthew says that Jesus moved his home base down to Capernaum, in essence, officially beginning his public ministry. And what did Jesus preach? He preached the exact same thing that John preached. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's very near. And then after this, first part of Matthew 5, Jesus calls his disciples to follow him. Then he went about teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of sickness and disease and and setting the, the demon possessed free. And then on this day, he sat down on one of those plenteous natural theaters nestled in the beautiful steep hills surrounding Capernaum near the scenic northern shores of the Sea of Galilee in order to teach his disciples and all of those who would come, and he's going to teach them on what I believe is that most important of topics, what John heralded, what Jesus heralded, the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of heaven, as Matthew prefers to call it. And I say that that is basically the idea behind the Sermon on the Mount, it is an unveiling of the kingdom of God, because... How horrible a teacher would Jesus be if he came and his forerunner came before him, teaching and preaching, repent for the kingdom of of God, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and then fails to adequately help us understand what that very kingdom is. It would be a horrible teacher, and of course Jesus is not the horrible teacher he is the teacher of teachers he is the great rabbi of all time and so i believe that the sermon on the mount is where jesus pulls the veil back and gives us a glimpse into what the kingdom of god is like and it's really wonderful to to look at it in in this term in these terms so let's look at the kingdom of god Good idea and bad idea. What's the false idea about the kingdom of God? So Jesus is surrounded by Jewish disciples and Jewish people here on the north, northern end of the of the Sea of Galilee. And these, this group gathering with him has an idea of what the kingdom of God is, and that idea was mixed up with or connected to the nationhood of Israel. And probably in their minds, there would be some kind of vision or their Messiah, their great awesome Messiah, ruling and reigning on Solomon's 12 lion, the throne from the Old Testament and a rebuilt palace of the forest of Lebanon with Jerusalem as a center city of the world, the capital of the world and all nations serving Israel. And don't get me wrong, these things will occur at some point in history, coming in the millennial kingdom. That's coming. But I would say, God forbid that the kingdom of God should be linked to that idea. And let me explain, and I'll do that carefully. Let's go back in time, about 1,500 years before this day where Jesus is sitting here, at the Sermon on the Mount, let's go back about 1,500 years to the day of Israel's nationhood. This is at the base of Mount Sinai, and this is the day when the Ten Commandments were delivered and when Israel agreed to be the covenant people of Jehovah. What kind of day was that? That day was scary. It was a dark day. It was a terrifying day. It was a day of cloud and fire and lightning and thunder and caution tape around the whole base of the mountain. A day when any who disobeyed and crossed past that tape, man or beast, would be put to death. It was a day when the people heard the voice of God with their own ears. And they cried out to Moses. In essence, they told him, no, no, no. No, only you, Moses. Let us not hear the voice of God speaking lest we die. You go speak to him alone. We can't take it. It was a day when the Ten Commandments were written on stone in crushing negativity. And the Ten Commandments are wonderful and they're beautiful, but they're crushingly negative from that standpoint. If you look at the shortened versions in Hebrew, five of them begin with the Hebrew word lo, 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 which means no. So in essence, God is saying no. No, 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 you shall not, you will not, you cannot, you must not. Why would we want more of that? Why would God want more of that? But he didn't, and he doesn't. So then, Barry, what is the kingdom of God? I love trying to keep the cookies on the bottom shelf, and this is the simplest way I can put the idea of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God in this time, for now, the kingdom of God is simply where God is king. That's where the kingdom of God is. It's not a matter of cities and, and nations and boundaries. The kingdom of God right now is where God is king, and sitting among them, teaching them, is one in whom God is king over every aspect of his life. So when John the Baptist came and when Jesus came, saying that the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is at hand, it was. It was at hand in the person of Jesus, but more than that, it was coming to folks like you and me because of what he came to do. It was at hand and through his coming sacrificial death, he came to initiate a new covenant by which sinners could experience an inner rebirth. And so where that inner rebirth occurs, and and in the Gospel of John chapter 3, Jesus speaking to Nicodemus, he called that being born again, where that inner rebirth, being born again, and its influence holds sway in a person's life, there would be found the kingdom of God upon earth. It's possible the kingdom of God to be to be in us, and as Pastor Ross pointed out last Sunday, the Sermon on the Mount is, no way, is in no way a standard of conduct that we're to try to go out and live. Don't even try; it'll crush you worse, worse than the Ten Commandments will crush you. My mouth is so dry. I'm going to run over here. I'm just going to keep talking. <laughs> part of part of the problem here, I'm, now, I'm off camera, and now everyone's where do you go? Where do you? Part of the problem is I'm so nervous. My tongue feels like it's three inches thick in my mouth. I have a cow tongue. All right, I'm back. Okay, where was I? Why would blah? blah, blah. Okay, so Pastor Ross pointed out last Sunday, the Sermon on the Mount isn't a standard of conduct where to try and go out and live, no way. Instead, it's simply a statement of what it is like in the heart of a person in whom God is king. There were shades of this way back in Ezekiel, Ezekiel 36, 26, speaking through the prophet, God promised that new covenant, and and, and it was this, that I will take out your dead heart of stone, and I will replace it with a living heart of flesh. And that new heart, we know from the the New Testament, that new heart is born of heaven's seed. I like to say it has heaven's DNA. And that heaven's seed, that heavenly DNA with which we're born again on the inside, naturally loves all things that are pleasing to God. So on this day, there's no darkness, there's no thundering as Jesus sits down here, there's no despair, there's no threat of death. Instead... There is the warmth of a beautiful Galilean day, and boy, the Sea of Galilee has amazing weather. There's this beautiful vista as the Sea of Galilee stretches out to the south of them for 12 miles, surrounded by hills all around, boats floating across, people probably swimming down there. There's a beautiful vista. There's the gathering of smiling friends, many of whom have been healed and set free by the previous work of Jesus. And so on this day, there are no Ten Commandments, perfect in purity, yet so impossible in the keeping. Instead, on this day, this day begins with nine beautiful blessings, four of which we have already studied, and let's move on to the fifth. Jesus says, blessed are the merciful. The first thing to tackle this morning is the idea of blessedness itself. Now, understand that blessedness, it isn't random. It's just not floating around in the universe, knocking into things with with no particular reason. Blessedness, the idea, has a source. It has a source. Of course, that source ultimately is God. Now, in the minds of those gathered around Jesus on this beautiful day in Galilee, along the shores of the Sea of Galilee, there's an idea, when they think of blessedness, They have a particular idea, and that takes them back to probably Deuteronomy chapter 28, I would guess, where God lays out all the blessings for following the law of Moses, all the blessings upon Israel for following the law of Moses, and then later in chapter 28, all the curses for not following the law of Moses, but blessed are you if you follow all these. That's the idea, but this blessedness of which Jesus is speaking isn't in response to keeping The law of Moses, it's deeper and more beautiful by far. I like to think of this blessedness as more a statement of fact where Jesus is simply describing a condition that lies over the life of a person simply because that person finds favor with the king of heaven. Let me tell you, go back and tell you a little story from the Old Testament, from the life of King David. David was not the first king in Israel. Saul was the first king in Israel. And of course, Saul eventually died, and and he was deposed, and, and God had anointed David through Samuel to become the next king. David had his best friend, was the son of Saul, named Jonathan, and Jonathan ended up dying at his father's side. And so David eventually became king over a unified Israel. All 12 tribes were his. God was blessing. And it was typical of kings in those days when they started a new dynasty as they went out and they made a search for every last living relative of the previous king. And when they found them all, they put them to death. That's just what kings did. So that dynasty couldn't come back and haunt them. But that's not what David did. David asked a question. It still slays me when I, when I think about it. He said, he said, is there anyone left of the house of Saul to whom I may show favor For the sake of Jonathan. And he was told, Jonathan had a son. He's lame in his feet. He was dropped when he was young. But but he still lives. And David said, bring him before me. So they brought Mephibosheth before him. And he's trembling in fear. Is his life over? What's going to happen? And what does David do? He says, I loved your dad. Best friend I ever had. So what I'm going to do for you, Mephibosheth, is I'm going to treat you like my own son. You're not going to be put to death. You're going to live forever forever. And you're going to eat forever at my table. So he knew the favor of the king. That's the idea of blessedness. He knew the favor of the king. And so when I look at blessed are, in my poor guy translation, I translate it like this. This is how I read it in my mind. How the favor of the king of heaven rests upon so in this case, it would be, blessed are, how the favor of the king of heaven rests upon those who are merciful. So the merciful speaks of those who show mercy to others. And this idea of mercy has two channels, two, eh, two different ways to think about it. There's the legal idea of mercy, which I ran into yesterday. So yesterday, I'm driving with my wife and two friends in the car. We're doing some sightseeing, and I'm driving from Chandler down to Coffee City, and I wasn't paying attention. I was going a little too fast. Okay, I was going 12 miles an hour over the speed limit. And the Coffee City policeman pulled me over. Nice guy, pulled me over. And he has three had three options at that point. Justice, mercy, and grace. Justice is, was I breaking the law? Guilty, guilty as charged. So justice is I get a ticket, and I go pay the fine. That's justice. He also has the the option of mercy, which I kind of like. And mercy is, hey, just give you a warning. You get off free, which he did, by the way, thankfully. And the other is grace. Now, grace would be super amazing, but I can't imagine any cop ever doing that grace would be he writes me a ticket because I deserve it and then he says but I'm going to take that ticket and I'm going to go pay it off for you that would be grace didn't get grace but I did get mercy yesterday so that's the legal idea of mercy and certainly that's being talked about here but there's also the general idea of mercy which is showing kindness to someone in in who is suffering like the good Samaritan remember the Jewish man on the road to Jericho it's a bad road in those days they called it the the way of blood or the road of blood it was so many so many bandits hanging out there and he got beat up and robbed and and nobody helped him except the samaritan who had pity on him and, and came to him in his suffering and helped him, that's the, that's the general idea of mercy. Now, both of these are emblematic of the heart of Jesus, the legal aspect of mercy, of course. That's why he came upon the cross. He paid the debt for my sin and yours to relieve us of the judgment of God, but then also he, he came from heaven to earth just to be with us in our misery. Just to be with us, just to help us in our suffering. So, in the heart of the person where God is king, this, where is the kingdom of God? Where God is king. Where does that begin? With a born-again heart. In the heart of a person where God is king, mercy should flow like a river. And how is the favor of the king of heaven experienced? For those who are merciful, Jesus continues, for they shall receive mercy. Now, not only has the born-again person received the ultimate legal mercy from heaven, but the born-again person whose heart mirrors that of Jesus upon earth experiences heaven's general mercy in everyday life. We call this the goodness of God. I could, as I'm sure you could, never stop talking about the goodness of God that he pours into my life simply because that's the way he is And there's so much mercy, so much goodness of God that comes to those who are made in the image of his son. And so God shows his kindness to such a person, this general goodness of God, in ways too numerous and wonderful for words, but which is so utterly stunning when you're the recipient of it. And when I think of the goodness of God and the mercies of God, that like Mephibosheth, every day, Every day he eats at the king's table. Every day he looks up and there is David, the man who should take his life, but instead saves his life and elevates him and he knows the good favor of it every single day. That is how God deals with us so much. So, by the way, now, Barry, is Jesus promising a works-based righteousness, meaning if you show mercy, I will pay you mercy? And I say not at all in this regard. He's simply stating a fact. It it can be one way to look at this is remember, a man reaps what a man sows, a woman reaps what a woman sows. That can be the idea here, but I think it's deeper and more wonderful for that. I think he's simply stating a fact, saying that if your heart is aligned with the nature of the King of Heaven, blessings will come your way. I think that's ultimately what's behind Deuteronomy 28 that I mentioned earlier. Blessing upon blessing upon blessing will flow to the people of Israel if they keep his commands, if they keep his law. And cursedness, cursedness, cursedness will flow if they don't. The truth about the universe is that God created it. He owns it, he made it. He rules and he reigns. And therefore, it's better for people, it's better for nations as well, if we align our affairs in keeping with his nature. And so, a heart that is merciful is simply a heart that is aligned with his nature And so when we are aligned with his nature, the blessings of heaven tend to flow. But let's continue with the next promised blessing. Blessed, Jesus says, are the pure in heart. In essence, so Jesus says, how the favor of the king of heaven rests upon those who are pure in heart. The Greek phrase, pure in heart, carries with it the idea of straightness, of honesty, of purity. And there are two ideas associated with this, an an inner moral purity, we get that, but also that of an undivided heart. And you put these together, and it speaks of a heart utterly devoted to God and to his holiness. And immediately we should recoil in horror and say, no, no, not possible. Indeed, it's not. But remember what Jesus is describing. He's describing for us that born-again inner man, that born-again inner woman, that part of us where God is king. And that part is born of heaven's DNA. And where we allow that DNA to renew the rest of us, changes from the inside out, there is purity of heart. And we will therefore grow to love those things spoken of in Philippians 4, 8. Those things that are true and honorable and just and pure and lovely and commendable and excellent and praiseworthy. They become a part of us. We love them. We cherish them. When God is king, where God is king. And how does the favor of the king of heaven then rest upon the pure in heart? Jesus says, for they shall see God So those who are pure in heart know the favor of the king of heaven and that they will see him more clearly. In essence, they they have a closer relationship with him. What a wonderful statement or promise that is. This tells us, by the way, that sin clouds our vision of him. It gets in the way of our relationship with him. I like the way Amos 3.3 is translated in some ways. Two cannot walk together unless they're in Agreement, as I mentioned to the Wednesday night crowd, I I understand that when Holding hands with my wife. I always hold hands with my wife. But when we're having a disagreement, which, you know, is about once every 15 years. We, we do pretty well. But when I'm having a disagreement, it's a little bit harder to hold her hand. Because it's just, there's, there's this, this uncomfortable thing. Now, I still hold her hand. But that's the idea. Two cannot walk together unless they be in agreement. Sin clouds our vision. So the, the purer the heart, the clearer the vision of God. The closer the walk, the closer the relationship. And Jesus continues, blessed are the peacemakers. So what does this mean? How the favor of the king rests upon the peacemakers. Keep in mind, Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth. How the favor of the king of heaven rests upon the peacemakers. Now, Jesus isn't speaking of peace between nations or peoples. This isn't uh, something to have, have, have anything to do with the United Nations. But he's speaking of peace or that shalom between God and humanity, which is the most important peace that there is. Peace between man and God. That peace for which the human heart yearns in its deep Deepest places, And one of the characteristics of the born-again heart, again, where God is king, is the pain of knowing that others are separated from God because of their sin. And so such a person who, who has that, that pain is always striving to see the lost experience the same salvation that they have experienced by God's amazing grace. Such a heart where God is king hurts for the lost, it prays for the lost, it cares for the lost, and they share God's love for the lost. So, how do peacemakers know the favor of the King of Heaven? Jesus says, For they shall be called. Sons of God. I love that idea of sons of. It is such a powerful phrase in in the Bible. Sons of carries with it so much weight. It is a title, son of. And so when son of is part of your title in the Bible, it means that you have the same nature as the thing you're the son of. For instance, when Jesus called himself the son of God, they took up stones to stone him because he made himself equal with God. So Jesus claimed to be the son of God, equal with God, same nature as God. Jesus also claimed to be the son of man. That was his favorite title for himself, son of man, which means he has the same nature as humanity. He is one of us, just without sin. So he's fully God and fully man. So son of God, son of man. In fact, Jesus gave James and John the nickname sons of thunder which means they have the same nature as thunder. They're loud, they're boisterous, they're dangerous, they're scary. Remember, these are two men that wanted to call down fire from heaven and destroy an entire Samaritan village because it wouldn't open its doors to Jesus on his way to Jerusalem. Sons of thunder. And so, true peacemakers are called sons of God, are known for being like God. Their hearts yearn to see the lost saved. And now we move on to a blessing which... May not seem like such a blessing. Jesus continues, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. Oh, yeah. Let's do that one twice, Barry. Okay. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. So what's he saying? How the favor of the king of heaven rests upon those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. So in the born again heart and life where God is king, there is an intense love for behavior that makes our heavenly father smile. And that's my cookies on the bottom shelf definition of righteousness. It's, it's behavior that makes God smile. Now, if that is the state of our heart, if God is king and we uh, love righteousness, um, behavior that make God smile, this puts us, by the way, at odds with our fallen world. In case you haven't noticed, our world is driven by the sinful nature and the sinful nature of humanity exists to defy God. It loves and exalts everything that, is, that goes against God's nature and it hates everything that God loves. So the world will be against those in whose hearts and lives God is king and it will persecute us. In fact, we'll, we'll come to that in a bit. So it'll, it'll persecute us in subtle ways. If you're a student, it may be You take a stand for Christ, and instead of your paper, which deserves an A, you get a C, or maybe you don't get that promotion at work because of your stand for Christ. In not-so-subtle ways, it can result even in, in martyrdom or death for your faith in Christ. The world will persecute, so the world, this world, will not reward righteousness, behavior that makes God smile. But the king of heaven will reward. What does Jesus say? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So the king of heaven himself will reward the persecuted with all that he has. All that I have is yours. That is incredible. And Jesus has more to say regarding persecution because I know everyone wanted a double dose of persecution this morning. He says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Or in my bad translation, how the favor of the king of heaven rests upon you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Now, regarding persecution, it's important to note here that Jesus isn't saying if, if those who follow him are persecuted. He's saying when, when those who follow him are persecuted. What this means is that persecution is a promise to true followers of Christ. It is a promise. There are some preachers who say otherwise. They're wrong. Jesus promises persecution, which means if we are not experiencing persecution in some way, shape, or form in our life, there's a very good chance we're probably not, we're not displaying the light of Christ in our lives. So it's a promise. And it reminds me, I go way back now to childhood when I had an old transistor radio and the tuning knob was broken. And I, I was too, I don't know, I'll just say dumb, I was too dumb to know if I, I could have changed it with a screwdriver, but it was stuck on a country western station. And so my whole childhood, it was just country western song after country western song. This is the early 70s, late 60s, not early 70s. And there was a song back then, and it was sung by a female, I don't know who it is, I probably should have looked it up, but she sang this song, I beg your pardon, I never promised you a rose garden. Anybody remember that song? And that's kind of the idea. Jesus is not promising us a rose garden. He is promising us persecution. And this is persecution, or this, it, this persecution is promised. Why? Because we love and follow Jesus. Understand this, follower of Christ. And I say this to myself as much as to anybody. It's not promised because we're rude, or because we're a pain in someone's rear, or because we're just a royal jerk. Christians can be that person, can't we? It's not, that's not why he's saying it. It's promised because we belong to Jesus and God is king of our lives. And so we're blessed from from that one, the persecution, because God is king in our lives. And now Jesus said falsely say all kinds of evil against you. This is slander. And this is hugely important. Because in the born again heart where God is truly king, There is a natural tendency to live honorably and nobly as Jesus lived. It changes us from the inside out. That utterly changes a life, which means that this world hates us. This world that hates us cannot or should not be able to find anything wrong with our lives so that they have to resort to slander and lies against us. This happened in the life of Jesus. They looked at the life of Jesus. They tried to accuse him. Before the leaders, they could find nothing, so they had to bring men to slander him, falsely say things against him. And it was true of the life of Jesus. It should be true of the lives of his followers, where God is king utterly changes a person's life and leads us into noble and honorable behavior. Now, how are such people shown the favor of the king of heaven? What is in store for Mephibosheth here? Rejoice and be glad, Jesus says. For your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So they're not described. He just says great. There are indescribable rewards awaiting those who are persecuted in heaven. And in fact, he says we are to be honored by the persecution. Honored by it because it's telling us something. It places us in amazing company. Jesus tells us that the prophets of the Old Testament were persecuted for their love for him. Which means the prophets, well, what is the spirit of prophecy? It's the spirit of Christ. They were all speaking of him. They saw him in advance and loved him and lived honorably and well because they loved him, and they were persecuted for that. And the world hasn't changed any since the days of the prophets. It has always hated those who truly love God. It has always honored those who hate God. This goes all the way back outside the Garden of Eden, Cain and Abel. One of them hated the other because he loved God. It's just the way of the world. By the way, Daniel is a fantastic, the prophet Daniel is a great example of that. They brought every private investigator they could find in the, in the Persian kingdom and went over his life with a fine-tooth comb and could find nothing wrong so well, so nobly, so honorably did he live. And this is without the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So well and so honorably and so nobly did he live that they could not find a single issue with his life except that it be in regard to the worship of Jehovah. And for that alone they sentenced him him to death in the lion's den. So persecution means we are in great company. It is a blessedness from God. It is part of the favor of God upon our lives. So that's the verse-by-verse portion for this morning. Let's end with a final thought, and this is in regards to what the Father finds beautiful. So let me put in a question form. Why is it that the favor of the King of Heaven rests so beautifully upon the lives of those described in the Beatitudes in verses 3 through 12, those who are poor in spirit, those who mourn, those who are meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, are merciful, pure in heart, peacemakers, etc. Why? Why does the favor of the king rest so beautifully upon those described here? And I think it's a very simple, wonderful idea. It's because the Father rewards Christ-likeness. So Peter, James, and John are later in, much later in their ministry of Jesus, are going to go with Jesus up on the Mount of Transfiguration. We believe this to be Mount Hermon in the north of Israel. He's going to go up there, and he's going to be transfigured before them. His clothes will become dazzlingly white, and there will appear Moses and Elijah with him. And Peter is so astounded, he doesn't know what to say, so he has to say something. I'm that guy sometimes too. And so he says, Lord, it's, oh, it's cool that we're all here. I'll make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And then a cloud envelops them, and the father speaks and says, This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. With him I am well pleased. There's one thing on this earth that the father finds beautiful. One thing that he finds beautiful, and that is his son And the only thing that he finds beautiful in you and me is the likeness of his son in us. And these beatitudes, these blessings, they describe Christ's likeness in our fallen world. The most amazing thing about these is they're crafted for a fallen world. Think about that. Being poor in spirit, mourning, hungering for righteousness, being a peacemaker would have no meaning in a world where Adam and Eve had not sinned. But yet God crafts his blessedness, his blessings in our lives in a world that has fallen because he sees Christ's likeness in us. And so the most beautiful thing in the Father's eyes is his Son. And so why the blessings? Why is Jesus opens the veil and lets us see we are seeing Christ's likeness in saved human beings and how the favor of heaven rests upon the likeness of the Son in us? In the person of Jesus, the world saw the most beautiful sight it has ever seen or ever will see. And what our world today, for our world to see him today, they need to see him through us. His his likeness in us is as beautiful to the Father then, now as it was then, but it is a way that others will see Christ and God will reward that. And so the blessings flow over a life where God is king. And that's the idea. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the blessings promised here. We thank you that you have crafted these blessings in a, in, to, to be in a fallen world. How astounding that is to us. But sir, we are amazed at the beauty of your son as we are reminded of him in all of these ways. Here on the Mount of of Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, we are so in awe of him. And so we pray that by the power of your spirit, you would mold and shape the beauty of your son in us little by little by little each and every day that we would be more and more like him. We would display the glorious light of the son of God in our lives. Be king. Be king in us in every aspect. Lord, we thank you for this. In the name of your son, Jesus, and all those in agreement said, amen.